Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to the last week of this semester. Yes, this is the last week. So if you show up next week, uh, the doors will be locked. I will not be here. Uh, so you can, you can have a quiet time out in the uh, parking lot. Um, this is the last week, and we'll come back the week of January the 9th, and we'll pick up in chapter 26, and we'll go through chapter 50 and finish up, up the book of Genesis next semester. So um, I've, I've had fun. I hope, hopefully you've had fun these first uh, 25 uh, chapters. I've gotten uh, uh, a lot of good comments from guys basically saying, hey, I've never seen Genesis in this way before. Um, my, the whole reason I teach, uh, and hopefully you know this, the whole reason I teach is it makes me study. Um, if I'm going to stand up here, I want to be prepared, and so it makes me study and it makes me dig. Um, and then the second reason I, I teach is because I want you guys to fall in love with the Scriptures too. And I know many of you already have a love affair with the Scriptures. Um, there's nothing more fun for me than to study God's Word and then to teach God's Word. So hopefully you've fallen more in love with the book of Genesis, and that's going to continue as we move forward. So we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning, so I'm going to pray for us that God would help me uh, clearly articulate what's in these three chapters as we wrap up this half of the book of Genesis. So would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you and we thank you that all those years ago you had Moses uh, pen this book so that we might read it and that, Father, we might learn from it. And most importantly, as has been the case every week of this series so far, may we learn more about you. Uh, may we see you in these stories and not just the life of Abraham and the life of Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah, but may we see uh, their God, uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God who still reigns, who still is in control, who is uh, controlling everything going on in our world and our lives. And I, I pray, Father, that we would see you for who you truly are, uh, God Almighty. And so we give you this morning and we pray that you would speak through your word to us. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is going to cover chapter 23 all the way through the end of chapter 25. And then we're going to dip our toe into the first six verses of chapter 26. And so we're going to cover a lot of territory. And this, this whole lesson is about a new chapter. Um, we're really at the midway point, the literal midway point of the book in chapter 25. But we're also at kind of a fulcrum point in terms of the story, the story of the people of Israel, the people of God. And we're going to see things begin to rapidly change. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to see the death of Abraham. He, he's going to come to the end of his life. You know, back in 1994, there was a movie made called uh, Two Funerals and a Wedding. Never saw it, don't know what it's about, don't really care. But I couldn't help think of that title when I was studying this because... We're going to see um, two funerals, um, a wedding, and a couple of births. Um, there's a lot packed into these last three chapters, and it's really pretty, um, pretty compact. It's like Moses is trying to bring everything to a screeching halt in preparation for everything that's to come, and that's why there's 25 more chapters that we're going to look at next semester. So, what we know is last week when we covered chapter 22, it says that Abraham, after 
sacrificing, or at least attempting to sacrifice his son Isaac, it says he returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Now, what jumps out at me is that from this point forward in chapter 22, Isaac is no longer mentioned. You remember the the whole point last week is that God took Abraham and said, I want you to take that son that you've waited all these years, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to literally slit his throat, dismember him, and burn him until there's nothing left. And he was in the process of doing that when God sent the angel to stop his hand. And then he said, no, now I know that you reverence me, that you fear me. And he gave him a substitute, the ram. And that ram was used in place of as a substitute for Isaac. But it's like there's a, there's a parting here where he, he comes back to those men. Remember, he said, we will go and worship, and then we'll come back. But it only says, it's, it seems to infer that only he came back. Now, I don't think it means he left Isaac behind. There, there are certain rabbinical scholars in the first and second century who thought this was an inference that he really did sacrifice him. Uh, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's Moses' way of saying there is now a change going on, that he comes back and there's a shift. There's going to be a shift in the narrative as the emphasis is going to move away from Abraham and it's going to move towards Isaac. Because as we saw last week, he really is the key, right? He's important because every one of the promises flows through him. So there's, there's a shift. It goes on and says this. There's another little um, shift in the sequence that is just the closing verses that we didn't look at last week of chapter 22. It says, now after these things, what things? The whole narrative of chapter 22. I want you to take your son. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. After these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazel, Pildash, and he goes through this lengthy list of oddly spelled names. And then it says, parentheses, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Now this is, um, again, one of the verses we, we read and we just blow right past and we don't think about it because once we get to some of these names, we can't pronounce them, so we just ignore them. But why is this here? Bethuel fathered Rebekah. See, once again, Moses is helping his readers, the people of Israel, who are preparing to enter the land of of promise, know that God is working behind the scenes. There's this mention of one woman in this list of men, and it's Rebekah. Remember, this is the end of chapter 22. What's going on? A new character. It's Rebekah. Mentioned in chapter 22, but she's going to become prominent as we move into chapters 23 and 24 specifically. So Abraham is going to be replaced by Isaac. He's going to take his place in the story, but then we're going to see Sarah get replaced by Rebekah. Again, changing the narrative, changing the focus. There's a whole new list of characters showing up as we get ready to move into the second half of this book. So that's what Moses was doing. So that leads us to chapter 23. And immediately after he attempts to sacrifice his son, we get to chapter 23 and it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of her life and she dies. Sarah dies. 
it's, again, bringing to an end one era or epoch of life, Abraham and Sarah, and introducing a new one. It says, she dies at Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There's, there's an end coming. There's a, one generation is dying off, a new generation is coming. She lived 127 years. Now, what you have to remember is that she was 65 years old when they left Haran. We don't know exactly how old she was when she left Ur. That's where they were when they were called. Remember, that's way over to the east near the Euphrates River, but they were called and they went to Haran. They stayed there for a while until Terah, the father of Abraham, died, and then they eventually made it to Canaan. She was 65 years old. That means 52 years passed before she died. She lived 52 years. Now, what do we know about that? During those 52 years, she was far from perfect. We've already looked at her life. She made some wacky decisions. She's the one who said, well, I can't have a baby. I'm barren, and God's not blessing me, so hey, Honey, why don't you go into my handmaiden, Hagar, and he bought it hook, line, and sinker, right? Great idea, honey. Sounds good to me. When can I start? And out of that came what? Ishmael. So she was far from perfect, but we do know that she was a woman of faith. We do know that she believed because if you go again back to Hebrews chapter 11, that great hall of faith, which outlines the those patriarchs who the author of Hebrews is using as examples of faith, even though they lived before the coming of Christ, says this, it was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She, she believed. But like Abraham, she believed in the promises. She just wasn't sure how the promises would get fulfilled. That's why she was always helping God out. She believed that God would keep his promise. She just thought he needed a little assistance. And think about it. We do the same thing. You know, we, we, we think about the fact that Jesus said, in this life, you will have joy. You will have abundance. I have come that you may ha- might have life more abundantly. And so we think, great. I love that promise. Here's how I think that should look like. And then we start determining what an abundant life looks like based on our terms, our definition. And he's up in heaven going, not quite what I had in mind, but okay, you go ahead and try that, and then I'm going to eventually show you what my abundant life really is all about. That's what's going on here. It goes on and says, so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, in other words, old, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore, there is no way to count them. So God fulfilled what he said, and she believed that he would, but we know that there were days of doubt. There were days where she had to help him out, but she was at the end of it all, according to Hebrews chapter 11, a woman of faith, but then she dies. She dies. 37 years after Isaac is born, she dies. Now, what you got to keep in mind, and you may have never thought about this, this woman never gets mentioned again. It's the last time she's really mentioned in the book of Genesis. And I hate this for her, but her last recorded words were so unflattering. Think about this. What do you want to be your last words? What do you want people to remember the last thing you said? That ought to dictate what comes out of your mouth. But here's the last words this woman said. 
Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, this is not the last word she ever said. It's the last recorded words. I told you the story of when I was on the phone with my daughter, and I'm driving in the car. It was after a Thursday night, last lesson of the week. I'm exhausted. I'm driving home. She calls. We're talking on the phone. I've got her on speakerphone, and she's having a really bad week, and I'm trying to encourage her, and I'm sharing scripture with her, and I'm I even, you know, pulled up into the driveway and I'm, I said, honey, I'm home. I'm, 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 I'm going to hang up now. Let me pray for you. I pray for her. I get out of the car and I slam the car door in my hand. And I cuss like a sailor. And all of a sudden I hear, hello, hello. And it's my daughter on the phone. The last word she heard me say before I thought I'd hung up, but I hadn't, were not very flattering. This poor woman, this is the last word she has recorded in scripture. Cast out the slave woman, speaking of Hagar and her son Ishmael. She cast them out. So Isaac is now 37 years old when she dies. Here's what's missing. Any grandchildren. Think about that. She's lived 37 years, all the way up to the ripe old age of 127, and she's not seen a single grandchild. What does every older woman want? Grandchildren, right? Grandchildren. I've had to encourage my wife over the years to just, no, don't say that. Don't, you know, don't ask your daughters, when are you going to have a kid? They, they don't need to have that question asked. They'll do it in their time. And we have nine now. So it's, they know how to work this out. But she's gone 37 years. Think about how much this woman has waited for all her life. Her whole life has been what? Nothing but waiting. Even when Isaac comes, now she's waiting, what? 37 more years, waiting for the first grandchild, and she never lives to see him. And yet it says this about all those patriarchs, including her in the book of Hebrews. All these people, including Sarah, died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. She never got to see grandchildren, but did that mean she stopped believing that they would eventually come? No, she did. She she did. You know, my my dad, I think I've told you this before, my dad uh, had a prayer arbor in his backyard, and my dad firmly believed every day of his life that Jesus Christ was going to come back in his lifetime, that that he was going to come back for the church in his lifetime. So he built a prayer arbor in his backyard in the east side of Fort Worth, Texas, And every morning he would go out there, rain or shine, at four o'clock in the morning, and he would pray and read his Bible from four to six every morning. And he literally had a flashlight. He didn't even have a light out there. He just had a flashlight. He'd read his Bible. And I finally asked him one day, I said, why why do you have it positioned here? Why, Why didn't you put it on the back porch where you'd be protected from the rain? And he said, because I wanted it facing east. What's going to happen in the east? that's where he's going to come back. He's going to come back from the east. And so my dad waited all his life. He died at 93, still waiting for the Lord, but believing he's going to come. That's the picture here. This poor woman kept believing for 37 years. And year after year, no grandchild, no grandchild. But she still believed that God was going to fulfill his promise. So she dies. 
Verse 19 says, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre and Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place for the Hittites. Now, Moses goes into great detail about how this came about, how uh, Abraham bought this piece of property, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. You can go back and read it, but what he does is he he knows he needs land to bury his wife, and so he begins a negotiation process with the Canaanites, to, or the Hittites, basically, to buy a piece of land on which he can bury his wife, and it will be the only land he really owns. It's a burial plot. Remember, this is the guy whom God said, all of this land I'm giving to you as an inheritance, and he will never live in any of it. It's just a burial plot. And it's where he'll also get buried. And others will be buried there as well. It becomes a very significant place in Israel, but it's where he buries his wife. And we know later on in chapter 25, it's going to tell us about his death. Abraham lived for 175 years and he dies at a ripe old age. Having lived a long and satisfying life, he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. So he dies, Sarah's died. And we know that he's buried in this very same spot in the same cave because it tells us in chapter 25, his sons Isaac and Ishmael. It's interesting that Ishmael shows back up, right? He was cast out, but he shows back up for his dad's burial, which says a lot about what he thought about his dad, that he would show up. And they buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. This was the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites and where he had buried his wife, Sarah. So he too is buried there. And it says this, after his death, God blessed his son, Isaac. So you see that shift again, the shift in narrative, the shift in focus from Abraham to Isaac. And it says, Isaac settled near Ber Lohaharoi in the Negev, down in the southern part of Israel. So we, we're, we're blowing past some, some information found in these chapters, but I'm trying to hit the high points. Sarah dies. Abraham dies, and then God begins to bless his son. Now, these chapters cover four decades, 40 years, 38 of which pass before Abraham dies. So from chapter 22 to the end of chapter 25, four decades are going to take place. And there's a whole lot of stuff that happens, right? We know that he's going to send for a bride for Isaac. We also know that he's going to remarry. I find this fascinating. This guy's old. He's way past 100. He's 100. He dies at 120 or 175. So he's somewhere 150, 160. And it says he remarries. And he has six more kids. I mean, what this tells you is there was never a problem with this guy being able to have kids, right? He could bear kids. He, he, he sired Ishmael. He sires six more sons. It doesn't say anything about how many female children he had. So he was never the problem. He could produce offspring, but it wasn't the way God wanted it done. He wanted it to be through Sarah. Even after he bears these six sons, they are not part of the inheritance. And he gives them gifts and he sends them away because he knows they're not part of the inheritance. So he was never the problem. He becomes a grandfather and a great-grandfather before he dies at 175. It's pretty amazing. 
All of this is going on in these closing chapters. And it says in chapter 24, when he's old, well advanced in years, somewhere in his 160s, we know that the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. God had blessed this guy, amazingly blessed this guy with long life, with health. Um, we, knew, we know he was fairly well off, cattle and sheep and oxen, and he, he was a rich man, but God had blessed him. And those blessings are now going to flow to who? To his offspring, to specifically Isaac. But chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. There's a ton of stuff that goes on, and it's really a love story. It's not a love story between Isaac and Rebecca. That's covered in there, but it's really a story of God's love for Abraham and his descendants. That's what we need to see in this. Yes, Isaac is going to marry Rebekah. God's going to miraculously provide a bride for him. But that's not the point of the story. It's a picture of, even with the death of Sarah and Abraham, his love affair for the people of Abraham is going to continue. He's not done. They die, the love story continues. It just transfers to the next generation, his descendants. Here's what Abraham knows. Abraham knows that for the the whole thing to continue, his son needs a wife. Now, this is not, I don't think this is a picture of Abraham helping God out. This is a cultural thing that, that almost all marriages at that time were um, arranged marriages. And he knows part of his job as a dad is to make sure his son finds a right mate so that the family line can continue. And so he goes into that process, and that's part of what chapter 24 covers is Abraham finding a bride for Isaac. Now, remember, where is he? He's living in the land of Canaan, and there's not a whole lot of Yahweh worshipers in Canaan. And so he doesn't want his son to marry a Canaanite, right? That, that would not be appropriate. He wants his son to marry someone who thinks like they think, who believes like they believe. And those women are not many in number, if at all. So he's going to have to come up with a different plan. So he sends his servant on a mission. And this is a, a, an incredible story. And I encourage you to go back and read it and just concentrate on what goes on in the story. We don't know who this servant is, but I want you to listen to what Abraham asked him to do. Chapter 24, verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who he had put in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Don't let him marry a Canaanite. Why? Because the Canaanites don't worship Yahweh. He says, but go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. This is what this guy, this guy is told to do. I want you to go find a wife for my son. Now, we know he's old. He doesn't know how long he's going to live, and so he's going to send this servant, because he's too old to go, on this mission to find a wife for his son, never knowing if he's going to live long enough to see her. So this puts a whole lot of burden on this servant, right? And to make matters worse, he, he makes him swear an oath by placing his hand under my thigh. Now, there's a lot of debate, a lot of speculation about what this means, and I think it's fascinating. It's, it's a little gross because here, here's what I believe it means based on the context. It's an oath. It's a personal oath. 
It's an incredibly personal oath. It's an intimately personal oath because here's what I believe is going on in this passage. The word in the Hebrew for thigh is yarek, and it, it can mean thigh, but it can also mean loins or your procreative parts. Now, you got you to stop and think. What was the sign of the covenant? Circumcision, right? Which involves the procreative parts of the male. This, this is an incredible oath that he's asking this guy to swear, and I would hate to have been the servant, all right? I am so glad we don't do this anymore, because here's what's going on. Thigh is probably, undoubtedly, a euphemism for genitalia. Now, for you ladies who are watching this on video, and they are, excuse this portion, but I can't escape it. In light of the passages such as Genesis 46, 26 and Exodus 1, 5, where it refers to a man's children coming from his thigh. That makes no sense unless it means something like the man's procreative parts, the genitalia, right? So it's not him sticking his hand under his thigh. It's much more intimate than that. Well, this guy goes on and he says this, holding Abraham's membrum in his hand, and I hope I don't need to explain that to you, The servant promises to carry out Abraham's wishes, taking the membrum, now circumcised as a covenant sign. In other words, it's the most intimate part of his body, and it's an intimate sign of his relationship with God. Into his hand is a way of invoking the presence of God at this moment. Now, I don't think anybody else is in the tent. Nobody else is participating in this, but God sees it. So this oath that this guy is taking is with Abraham, very intimate, very personal, and before God Almighty. This would have been really difficult. I remember when my dad, in the the later years of his life, um, I would go over once a week or twice a week, and I would help him shower. Um, Nothing more humbling than to help your 92-year-old dad shower. You know, it's just I never want to have to go through that again. I can't imagine this guy going to this 175-year-old man and holding his private parts and swearing an oath. Now, why is this important? Because it's more than just an oath. I, I think this idea of it tying back to the circumcision that Abraham belongs to God, I don't think this servant was necessarily a Yahweh worshiper. Even though he talks to Yahweh, he could have been an Egyptian, he could have been a pagan. We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. But he knows that this God of, Yahweh, of Abraham, Yahweh, is a pretty powerful God. He's seen him do pretty amazing things. Remember, it says he's the oldest servant he has. He's been with this guy a long time. So he's making a commitment. And here's what he has to commit to. See to it that you do not take my son back there. Don't take him to Ur or to Haran. Don't take him back to Mesopotamia. You go and get a bride because if he leaves, he may never come back. And if he leaves, what's the problem? All the promises have to happen here. That's why he's sending a servant. Notice he doesn't send Isaac. He sends a servant in place of Isaac. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. In other words, he's saying, 
Don't take him with you. He doesn't get to choose because I don't want him leaving here because he may never come back. So you go and God will send his angel before you. Now, how does he know that? It's again a picture of his belief. He believes that God is going to keep this thing going. And in order for it to keep going, Isaac has to have what? A wife. You don't get any offspring without a wife. It's impossible. And so he puts all of the burden on this man, but he says, his angel will go before you. And then he gives him a way out, not a way out, but a kind of a, an exclusion. He says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. He says it a second time. Do not take Isaac out of Canaan because Canaan is the land of promise. That's huge. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then he takes 10 of his camels, departs, takes all sorts of choice gifts from his master. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now, where's he going? We know that he came originally from Ur, which is way over in the east, but we also know that he went to Haran, a place up further in the north, still part of Mesopotamia. This is where the servant is going. He's going up to Nahor. Now, Nahor is the name of Abraham's brother, and that's how this region became known among the people of Israel. But it's also called Haran. This is where he's going. It's probably about 400 miles. It's a long journey. It's going to take months to get there. He doesn't know how long it's going to take this guy to find a bride, but we do know this. It's where he came from. It's Ur. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 11. Now, these are the generations of Terah, the father of Abraham. He fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot, then Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur. Remember that? Way over to the east. Then Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And they all moved to where? They followed their father Terah all the way up to that place called eventually Haran, and then Ur. That's where they came from. Where is he sending the servant? Back up there. Now, chapter 24 goes into great detail about all the stuff that happens in him finding the bride, but it's, it's amazing. If you look at it through this particular lens, look at it through the sovereignty of God. One of the things that we don't do enough of, I think, as modern-day believers is we don't see the hand of God in everything that happens in our life. Things happen, and we wouldn't say this, but we think it's bad luck, it's happenstance, it's, it's kismet, it's fate, it just happened. We don't understand, we don't get it, we don't know why. But nothing for a believer happens by chance because God is in control. God is working behind the scenes, and we see it in the story because it just so happened that these things that are happening in this story, chapter 24, are done by the sovereign work of God. And if you don't see that, you don't get the story. It's just a story. But it's a picture of the hand of God. Why is God having Moses write this for the people of Israel who are getting ready to go into the land? It's so that they will understand that your God is never out of control. Look at this. You see his handiwork everywhere. The God guides this guy all the way up to Haran, protects him, helps him get there. He eventually does. We don't know how long it takes. And he ends up at this well at just the right time. 
Now, you got to think about this. How many wells are there in Haran? I have no idea. But there's not just one. That, that would be impossible. So there's multiple wells, but he ends up at this particular well at just the right time of day when the, the granddaughters of Nahor have come to get water. So he's arrived at the perfect time of day, and it's the time when one of these granddaughters, Rebecca, shows up, and then it, she just happens to be gorgeous, not dead gorgeous. So everything has worked to where he's arrived at the right time, he's made it safely, all his camels, everything's there, and there's Rebecca. Now, one of the things that makes this so significant is that he's going to ask God for a sign. Everything is falling together. He doesn't know who Rebecca is. He doesn't really know where he is at this point. He's just arrived in the region, and, and he's waiting for God to show something. And it, it makes me think of these two passages. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Think about it. Everything in your life is happening by the sovereign will of God. Look at Psalm 37, 30, 23. The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord who takes delight in his journey. This guy's a servant. He's been sent by Abraham to go find a son, a, a wife or a son, Isaac. He takes it seriously. He swore a very personal oath. And God is directing his path. Everything falls together. Here's what happens. He gets there, and then he makes a, kind of a deal with God. Uh, he asks for a sign. He says, let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you, you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So this servant who may or may not be a Yahweh worshiper, is calling on the God of his master, and he says, hey, here's the deal. Help me find out which one of these women is the right one, because there's multiple women there. And he says, let it be the one who greets me, offers me water, and then offers to water my camels. It's very specific. And again, this guy, we don't know that he's ever done anything like this before, but he's asking God for a sign. And it says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, Rebekah shows up, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah. Remember the last verses of chapter 22, that little parentheses? Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Here's how it's all coming together. She's the daughter of, or the granddaughter of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. And she's very attractive in appearance. And she's a maiden whom no man had known. In other words, she's a virgin. She's never been married. It's perfect. Everything's coming together. And what does she do? She does exactly what the servant asked. She offers him water, and then she offers to feed his, or to water his camels. And that's the sign. So what jumps out at this whole story is that he asks for a sign, and what does God do? He gives him a sign. He graciously says, okay, you want to know the right one? Here she is. And she just happens to be gorgeous. God's kind of gracious that way, right? Every guy in this room, if you're honest, will, will say that the greatest example of God's grace in your life is your wife, right? I do not deserve my wife. I'm surprised she said yes. She said no pretty frequently before then, um, but she finally said yes, and that's the grace of God. And she's been the grace of God in my life ever since. And that's true in this story.
Rebecca is very clearly the answer. She's the one. He's traveled 400 plus miles and God has shown him. And then look at what he does. He gives God credit. It says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Now, no, this is one of the reasons I don't think he's necessarily a Yahweh worshiper. He refers to him as his master's God. Now, if this guy's a pagan, which I think he is, he's got lots of gods that he worships. And they had no problem worshiping any and all gods. They were an equal opportunity idolater. And so he has no problem giving credit to the God of his master because he just saw him do something great. But it doesn't necessarily mean he's a Yahweh follower. But he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. He's been faithful. It's interesting, last week I had a guy come up and he, it was on Thursday night, I believe, and he said, I see a reoccurring theme in all of your lessons. And I went, what is it? And he goes, that God is faithful. I said, great. I, I don't know that I'm trying to put that in there, but if you see that, I'm glad you see that because guess what? That's what this whole book is about, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. And even this servant saw the faithfulness of God, doing for Abraham what he needed to have done, find a wife for his son. So what is Moses doing? He's setting up the stage for all that's to come because we know the servant comes home. He brings Rebecca with him. And there's a lot of things in the chapter 24 that we're not going to look at, but he brings her back and they get married. There's that wedding. We've had two funerals and now we have a wedding. And then this is what begins the next phase, which is going to lead into the last 25 chapters of the book. It's all part of God's plan. And what I think is fascinating is that you're going to see a case of deja vu. Haven't we been here before? Hasn't this happened before? Because what immediately happens is Rebecca proves to be barren. And I read that and I go, okay, God, what is up with you in barrenness? Why do you do things the way you do things? See, you have to believe if he is sovereign, this is all part of the sovereign plan, right? He chose uh, Sarah to be barren. He's now chosen Rebecca because she proves to be barren. And Isaac, according to the passage, is going to pray 20 years before she has a child. And I guarantee 99.9% of us in the room never knew that about this story. She's going to wait 20 years before she ever has a child. Who else is going to wait? Well, Abraham's going to live at least 15 years before he dies after the birth of this child or before the birth of this child, I mean. So he's going to wait. Sarah had waited and died without seeing the grandchild. They're going to pray for 20 years, and God is once again delaying the promise. Why? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know why there's the delay. I don't know why God has chosen for this woman to be barren just like Sarah, but God has a plan. And here's what happens in the meantime. Abraham is is able to go on and father six more sons by a woman named Keturah. He gets married, has six more sons. He's having kids. Ishmael goes on and fathers 12 sons. He's having kids. Who's not having kids? Isaac. Why is that important? Because if Isaac doesn't have kids, what happens to all the promises? Nothing. There's no fulfillment of the promises. He's still waiting for an heir. Why the delay? 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know God's ways. I don't understand why he does. But Isaac prays and prays and he waits and he waits and he watches and he, for 20 years, waiting for God to do what needs to be done. And it tells us in verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah's wife conceived. God stepped in at just the right time, at just the right moment. And it says, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? There's something going on in her body. She's obviously having more than one kid, right? She's, she's been blessed with twins, we'll find out. And her, her, they're, they're struggling. There's, there's turmoil going on in her. And evidently, it's of such a degree that she's wondering what is happening. There's probably pain associated with discomfort associated with it. She doesn't understand why this is happening. Yes, she's pregnant, but there's pain. There's uh, a dissonance. Like, what? why is this happening to me? Once again, why God? Why God? That's a question we always ask when we don't understand things. So she asked God, and the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. What an, what an incredible statement. It, it, it doesn't even make sense, especially to her. What do you mean I've got two nations within me? What do you mean they're, they're, they're going to be divided? What, what mother wants to hear that, that the two within you are going to be divided? They're going to create two nations. But that's exactly what God is telling her, that something significant is happening within you. Here, here's what jumps out at me. God was informing Rebecca and Isaac that they would be used to produce two nations through whom he would accomplish his divine plan of redemption. That's what he's telling them, whether they understand it or not. God could have blessed this couple with a single child, but he had other plans. Why did he give them two? Why, why does he need two when really only one of them is going to be the child of promise? Well, we don't know. There's a lot of mysteries here. At this point, his purpose for placing two sons in Rebekah's womb remains obscure and difficult to ascertain. And his plan for those two sons to result in two nations that stand diametrically opposed to one another remains a mystery. He doesn't tell her. All he says is, you have two sons within you, and they represent two nations, and those two nations will be divided. And again, it's setting the stage. And she gives birth. She gives birth to twins. First one comes out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which means hairy one. I mean, that's a great name to have, right? He's so hairy when he comes out that they name him hairy one, Esau. And afterwards, right after him comes his brother holding his heel. So his name is called Jacob, which means heel holder, surplanter. And all of that will make sense as we move into the second half of the book. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Think about this. He was 40 when he married her. He's 60 when she finally has a kid. 20 years they've been waiting. And this is what they get. A hairy kid and a, the other one holding his brother's heel. And there's all kinds of imagery wrapped up in this. The boys grow up. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And then here's the key. Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. There's something going on in this family, and it's not healthy. There's disunity already beginning to rise up that's going to play out as we move forward. They grow up. 
and you end up with a family that's fractured because the father loves one of the kids and the mother loves the other. Never a good recipe for family unity, right? And it's going to cause conflict. And that's why chapter 25 ends on a very dark note. Something happens between these two brothers. Esau will sell his birthright to his brother. And we're not going to go into the details of that because I want to save that for next semester. But this guy, driven by his physical desires, sells his birthright. And why that's important is the birthright is the key to what? All the promises. The oldest son gets the promises, but he sells his birthright. Why in the world would you do that? Over a bowl of soup, which is what the story tells us. And Jacob cheats him. Remember, he's called heel holder, supplanter. He's, he's a trickster. He, he cheats out his brother, and there's something going on in this story. And yet, it looks like these two guys are in control, but ultimately, who's in control? God. God is working behind the scenes, orchestrating everything that's going to happen. And we'll end with this. Chapter 26, first six verses, again, deja vu all over again. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Remember when he got to the land famine and he escapes to Egypt? Well, God's going to put a stop to anything like that happening. He says, Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines ostensibly for food. And the Lord God appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. Here's the promises being reiterated once again to who? To Isaac. What's going on? A famine. Exactly like what happened to his father. But he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all of these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. This is how the first half of the book ends. He's saying, another famine. You could run. You could could flee. You could seek help elsewhere. But trust me, because I am going to do everything I said I would do. So as we wrap up this half of the series, here's what I want you to think about as you you talk around your tables. First of all, how do a fractured family and a devastating famine reveal God's sovereignty? Think about that. All these promises, everything that God has said, you got two brothers who can't get along, a dad who loves one of them, a mother who loves the other, and then there's a famine. How does any of this reveal the sovereignty of God, and how could it be part of his plan? Think about it. When bad things happen in your life, it's really hard to imagine that being a part of God's plan. Bad things are happening, seemingly bad things. How is that part of his plan? Secondly, why would God provide Rebecca with two sons, but then warn her that they would never get along? What kind of blessing is that? What purpose could he have for that blessing slash curse? What could be foreshadowed of what's to come? And you're going to have to kind of think ahead in the story. Then finally, why is it unwise to judge God's character based on the state of our circumstances? How are we guilty of doing so? I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Last week, my check engine light comes on, and I uh, take it into my normal mechanic, and uh, he runs a diagnostic. He goes, it's something to do with your camshaft. I have a Mini Cooper. He goes, we don't really do that kind of work on Mini Coopers, so I have to take it into the dealership, which I never take 
my car into the dealership. I get a call late Friday, and they said, it's your camshaft, and it's going to have to be replaced with all the sensors, and it's $4,300. And I just sank like a rock. I was like, God, what, what are you doing? Why this? Why now? Why are you doing this to me? That's exactly what goes through my brain. I was depressed all weekend. And then Sunday, I did the pastoral prayer at church. First hour at the end of the service, a man and his wife come up to me about my age, and he's got stage four renal cancer. And he's asking me to pray over them because he doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. And it's like God said, so what about your car? Is that really that important in the grand scheme of things? Second hour, I do the pastoral prayer. At the end of the service, a young man comes up covered in tattoos, shaved head, just yellow teeth, screaming drug addict. I mean, his, everything about him. And he walks up to me, tears in his eyes. He goes, every word of that message was for me. And he said, I need help. I said, what do you need help with? He goes, I'm a drug addict and I've been one for 15 years and I don't know how to escape it. And I thought, what about that car? What about $4,300? See, God is at work. Whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, he's at work. So how do we do the same thing? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these guys. I really do. And I pray that as they talk around these tables, that they would be open and honest with one another. Lord, we really don't trust you. And sometimes we judge your character based on circumstances. If things are great, you're a wonderful God. If things are not great, all bets are off. And we begin to question your goodness, your your power, your love. Lord, would we see you for who you really are? Regardless of what is happening in our lives, you are in control. And we're going to see that over and over again as we begin the study back up. So bless these discussions. And Father, we pray that you would show yourself to us, even today, that you are sovereign over all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.